Welcome to another episode of the Bonte Boys Podcast. I'm your host, Blako Aziza Wisa, here with Julian Tukuna. Welcome on board with us. Yes, and our manager, Patrick Delabanza. Yes, and we have a, a very, very excellent guest. Like, I'm very, very excited to have him here. I'm excited for all of our guests, but like, this guest, I'm like thoroughly impressed. We did our research on him. You know, we have to like check your background and you're like, who you know and stuff like that. So, Yaya, please introduce yourself, please. Uh, my name is Oliver Coupe, Oliver Joe Coupe. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for having me on. Been watched a few of your videos. Highly impressed with what you guys do and the message. So, happy to be here. Uh, excellent, excellent. Um, um, hey, what you call Patrick and Julie? I'll go first and then we'll go question to question or whatever, right? So, yeah, Oliver, so who are you? Where are you from? What's your background? Um, how'd you get into financial planning? There you go. Uh, so, origin story, right? With my, my mom and dad, uh, we were representing, obviously, Congo. We, um, so, my dad is uh, Muyanzi, mom is Tuko, so they grew up in the Manuda uh, state, so right by Kikwi. Uh-huh. And so, they, my parents moved from after boarding school and high school, they immigrated to uh, West Germany to, to study. So uh, Aachen, Aachen, Germany, Institute uh-huh. of Technology, uh, Technical University uh, in the 70s. Uh-huh. They then had my two older siblings in uh-huh. Germany, in Aachen, Germany. Uh, so my sister Carla, who's out here in Chicago, uh, attorney, and my sister Laura, who's out in D.C., also attorney, but works for the government. Right. Can't, can't really say what she does all the time. Oh, by the way, um, yeah, yeah, um, Oliver, I want you. Uh, I'm beefing with your sister, um, Laura. By the way, I don't know why, but I'm just beefing. Just, I'm just a major hater. (laughs) (laughs) She's a controversial figure. She keeps alive during all our family meetings. Um, but then myself and my 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 parents had moved from Germany, Mouth of Germany. My dad worked for GM, moved us to Luxembourg, small country group, four hundred, five hundred thousand people. We were probably the only black people in our in our little town. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was born there along with my younger sister, Johanna, who's on San Francisco, uh, working in tech recruiting. And so we, that, that's our family nucleus until we moved to the States um, in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, again, with GM. The plan was only, as my dad would tell you, to only stay here, you know, five, ten years. As soon as we got out of school, parents wanted us to get an American education. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, moved us to Grand Rapids. We went to Grand Rapids, we went to the east side, to Detroit after that. Right. Um, myself, I was, I was a soccer player, so I'm rocking, I'm rocking the, I'm rocking the okay. PSG. Okay. Okay. I'm going to Kylian Mbappe. Yep. So, was a soccer player, was able to, to stand out playing soccer, was recruited to go play at Northwestern University. All right. An econ major there, uh, I was playing on a soccer team. And then once I graduated, uh, was drafted in the MLS, uh, but didn't didn't end up playing. Actually, skipped and actually started working with Merrill Lynch uh, after a couple of tryouts. Mm-hmm. And the reason I went into wealth management uh, for I kind of fell into it just because of, kind of the cycle of the MLS and when that draft, basically the draft period was, and then the recruiting process with the big investment banks. Or consulting firms that kind of passed, so I kind of came in trying to think how do I apply, you know, my finance and economic background right. in the workplace, and what am I actually passionate about? 
And one of the big things from being, you know, from my family, what I noticed is like, man, no one ever talks about money. Right. A lot of people going to school, getting a lot of degrees, including a lot of student loan debt. Right. But again, no one was really talking about the finances with my family or really around most of most of my extended family either. So I had a big interest in just finances and and money management. I was able to get a career, you know, start off at Merrill Lynch Mm -hmm. and was really fortunate to meet my first business partner and really build some really unique niches within my clientele uh, that, you know, that really has brought us from, you know, probably from Merrill Lynch to now owning uh, our own investment advisory firm. Wow. That's impressive. So wait, you did not, so you tried out with an MLS with MLS and you're like, no, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. uh, Essentially it was, I mean, at that point in time, a real Salt Lake drafted me. Um, I was actually, on my way to an interview, I was actually in an interview right. with with a bank here in Chicago when my phone started ringing off the hook um, in the coat closet, and the interview was like, "Hey, you should probably take that." So I was going off about 10, 15 minutes. Right. And the text message, "Hey, you just got drafted by We All Salt Lake City with the sixty fifth pick in the MLS draft." So I'm like, "Like, what do I? I got to. I guess I'm out." Like, I literally left the interview and began right. to come in and, and you know. Get uh, get the training camp in Seattle and then in Arizona. Um, so that was my experience playing soccer, and I realized I was a fringe player. The, uh-huh. the contracts back then were like sixty, you know, it was a nice living, forty five, fifty thousand dollars for your league minimum. Yeah. Uh, but to me, it was like, man, like my parents are after paying what they paid for Northwestern, not that out of school. And uh, so I was. I was really like really blessed if that happened, but I knew that there was a career I wanted to get started on first, and somehow I'd find my way back to being involved with professional sports. Uh-huh. Okay, that's great. First of all, you got drafted, so that's incredible. I don't care what it is, you got drafted. Like I love basketball, but I'm a fringe five eleven. No, wrap it up. <laughs> and I'm kind of athletic, so eh. Yeah. Uh, well, I used to play ball with basketball too with Draymond. In high school, so he, because uh, he's yeah, from Florida, Michigan. So yeah, we played, we played him in the state semifinal. Like Draymond Green, man. He's so when he went to Michigan State, and I was at Northwestern, but I was in the stands watching our basketball guys play. And he, we would, we remembered each other. So, as for day day, he looks like he put, a lot of trash. He looks like he doesn't put lotion on. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love him. I love the way he just looks. Oh, I hate it. No, go ahead, Patrick or Julie. Go to the next question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what's the difference? You know, you're, you're, you kind of explained, you know, the your financial path. Uh, uh, my question would be like, what's the difference between what you're doing and and uh, a broker does? Yeah. So, I think the in the industry has changed. Has forced the the title, the change of what used to be a stockbroker. Mm-hmm. And right in the 80s, everyone's seen Wall, like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, or just Wall Street, the movie. It's the guys in the boiler room that would cold call 400, 500 people a day and mm-hmm. pitch, you know, Kodak stock or Microsoft. And that would be your broker. And you would build your clientele based off of your, you know, your cold call list. And you would only call that investor and they wouldn't even call on clients back then, but your investor, anytime you had a new investment to pitch. And what has now kind of changed from the 80s and 90s and now into modern day wealth management is that 
people were pitching investment ideas to folks that shouldn't have been investing in those. Like it was all about selling the idea, collecting the commission, hanging up the phone and on to the next one, not caring if you sold somebody a penny stock. Yeah. Or everything went bottom, you know, went, went belly up in terms of their investments. Now, I think because of the, the, the 01 bubble and then obviously for the, you know, for the financial crisis where banks and financial institutions finally got put on blast in the sense of all the, all the negligent behavior they're having mm-hmm. uh, and selling bad loans, bad mortgages, bad investment advice. And look what happened, right? The world almost ended. When I came into the business, that was almost all eradicated. They put new standards of how you need to, they pretty much eliminated the word broker and working for a firm like Merrill Lynch, which actually disappeared, right? They went to zero dollars on the stock market and were gone. Oh. And so Bank America had to come in and bail them out. And that's why Bank America and Merrill Lynch. So I kind of came into the, the era where now we are financial advisors or financial planners. And the biggest difference is that we now lead, we have fiduciary responsibility. I'm sure everyone hears about fiduciary responsibility and what does that mean? It means that you have to have any recommendations you make have to be in the best interest of the client. It has to be conscientious about their risk tolerance, right? How much risk they can take, you know, what are their liquidity needs, access to cash. And, and kind of most importantly, you have to know what their goals are, right? Mm-hmm. What are, the investments are a, are essentially you know, a piece of what makes your financial plan. And so what we kind of what we change the game and naturally, but also what our firm does is kind of leads with it. We're financial planners. We got to know who you are, hmm. what your motivations are, what your interests are, what are you working for, who are you working for, what are you working towards? And then being able to first identify those, yeah. then putting together a financial plan that might address those needs and those goals without even having to discuss investments yet. Investment piece is the last thing that comes into play once you've understood, all right, here, here's your fund, here's your goals, yeah. here's your funding need for those goals, here's when they need to be funded, because that'd be right, you have different goals for different times in your life. Okay, what investment products will then create the cash flow or the ability to then you know fund those goals? And so that's where we move from a social stockbroker where you don't even know that person's maybe last name or anything about them, telling them that stock or that that investment, where we we know the entire person, their financial plan, in order to then make the appropriate investment. Mm -hmm. So it's planning first, investment second, where brokers are investment first, zero planning. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's yeah. <laughs> we all just like, uh, no, I'm yeah. just, I feel like I'm just learning. I just look, I'm on my phone. I text my homeboys. I'm with this investment planner right now. My brain is blown. <laughs> because like, right. Cause you know, when the people just talk about like investment and money, they're like, okay, when you get money, just invest. Right. right? But I was like, that's vague. I don't, I don't know what that means. It's we're not, we're not, we're not fiscally like educated as no. a, like people. And, and so much of it for me was seeing and know my, my little soapbox here about these big banks sure. and hiring these young advisors like myself in our, you know, tw- in our early mid twenties. And they're asking us to go get assets of people who are, you know, they said our minimum assets that we have to bring in a household essentially to get credit and be actually getting revenue from it had to be $250,000 or more. So you're asking me, a you know, 23-year-old to go and black 23-year-old, mind you, hey, yeah. can you give me your IRA or 401k money to invest. 
people are like, no, like, what are you doing? And so the, the system kind of puts us in a place where we as young people, as an advisor, we weren't able to really get the assets that we wanted to, to survive in the business. I got, again, fortunate to find these really unique niches to, yeah. to pull me up and get me through that. Um, but then from a, like you said, from an individual standpoint, who's trying to figure out where to start and all they see is all these advertisements. Oh, I made this much money in the stock market. Oh, I made this much money in real estate. Give me $10,000 and I'll flip it to hundred. Like no one knows like that. Those are all these things that makes people nervous. They get, Oh my God, I'm behind. I don't know where to start. Look what everyone else is doing. It's the show me society where mm-hmm. it's, doing the same thing in terms of personal finance where you just got to go down to the basics. Like, dude, get a budget, have a savings account, make sure you max out your retirement accounts. If you have any sort of excess savings left after that, uh-huh. make sure you have six months of it lined up because I bet now a lot of people wish they would have. And then access of that, you can start playing in the taxable market and do the investing. So there's so many steps that you have to do to first feel comfortable to actually engage into investing. <laughs> that's what it's gonna be saying like yeah wow yes. yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I, oh man um so i mean you already kind of wanted the next question like how the firm came about mm-hmm. um but yeah how did the firm came about and one thing i did want to know i understand it's a women and minority owned wealth advisory firm yep yep so so i mentioned my partner before who i met um amy werner so right when i started at merrill I came in as a sole proprietor, you know, sole practitioner. So I had to draw my own book. I didn't you know, loop into a big financial management team that had millions of millions of dollars under investment or, or managing that was going to give me a piece. They're like, you, you know, you you're going to eat what you what you kill. And about three months into the business, my first kind of big client opportunity came up, and I was introduced to my first exoneree, uh, Jonathan Barr, an exoneree. Those that those are individuals who have been wrongfully convicted and have been exonerated, um, you know, from obviously from their crimes and from prison. Mm-hmm. I got introduced to Jonathan uh, through an alumni at uh, Northwestern who uh, was at an event, and he did prison ministry in the Illinois penitentiary system. Uh-huh. And he, you know, he's like, "Hey, the you know, I heard you just started out in Merrill Lynch. You know, I got a very interesting you know, friend of mine who and his brother uh, who are about to come in a lot of money." And so he's like, hey, these guys spent you know, 17 years wrongfully convicted for a murder rape that they didn't, they never didn't commit. They weren't, they were brothers, Jonathan Barr and James Harden. You know, their case is pretty notable. They're called the Dixmore Five. Oh, another one? Okay. Yeah. Right. And so they, they were 14 and 16 when they went in and came out, you know, 17, 20 years later. Wow. And so that was, you know, they got a, a civil settlement from the county and the state of Illinois. Uh, and so I was able to manage those assets. Um, and to this day, Jonathan's my, like my brother, um, pretty much a godfather to his, to his daughter. He has a thriving business, but that was my first big client. And when I got my first big client, the firm started noticing, like, hey, you need to partner with different advisors to help you out with managing you know, these, you know, this multi-million client. And the one person that I met within the firm that was like, man, you don't need anybody. Like, you can do this was, you know, this, you know, woman at the time, Annie Werner. And Annie was in charge of a $3 billion team in Merrill and was managing assets for households of only $20 million and above. So she, you know, she, she was a Northwestern grad, and I got introduced to her through a mutual 
um, colleague, and she was the first person I met that really was in it for the right reason, right, to make a difference in their clients' lives. It wasn't about the money, it was about the, the lead, leading with the, with the planning. And to start out, I was the only black, only black person under 40 years old at Maryland, Chicago's office, all three locations. There it is. There it is. Like it was, I think there was five of us in the Metro Chicago area, which I'm, which is insane considering the black wealth and history that Chicago has that we only have five black advisors in over 120 advisors in Chicago. Um, So that was something that kind of led to Amy and I, who was one of the few young females to be in the business, to kind of team up, like, hey, let's really go out and get some cl- the clientele that previously didn't think their money was good enough to be with the Merrills and the J.P. Morgan. So that is the, you know, the black the black investors, female investors who felt so alienated by the financial services industry for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted them to put a change in that. And so that's where we teamed up. And we've been together for 10 years now. Um, it's literally no longer relationship with a female besides my my my, my siblings or my mom. So she's she's that type of uh, a friend and partner to me. Um, when we left Merrill, we decided to create to really focus on females, minorities as clients, but also the makeup of our team. Uh, so we got four you know, four women, three men on our team, one other brother that works with us, Cam Dickerson, and we were able to really build on the momentum from Jonathan Barr to now working with 12 exonerees in the last 10 years. Two hundred eighty-six years stolen from them combined, um, and and then at the side, we, then the other unique thing that we were able to really curate was professional athletes, right? Leveraging my contacts during my playing days, mm-hmm. contact with athletes at Northwestern that made it in the various leagues, and building up our athlete platform. And oh yeah, we've been able to work with about twelve athletes over the last you know, ten years as well. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this. Um... Um, what can you explain to the people? What is the name of your um, ad- company? Oh, okay. yeah, A and O Advisors. So Amy and Oliver Advisors. So A and O, and we we left officially left Merrill in November 2017. Okay, and we at that time were we you know, left about 30 million assets under management and advise under advisement. We left Merrill. Today we are about 100 million in just the last year and a half or two years. And you know, right now we have about 50, 48 households that we work with, 70 clients. And like I said, probably a third is exonerees, a third is athletes, and the rest of the third is just your general high net worth individuals. Okay. Um, you So you're based out of Chicago. I don't know if this is a question down the line. Have down the line. I'm probably just I'm probably jumping the gun. But mm-hmm. are you willing to work outside of Illinois and Chicago? Your oh, yeah. Yeah, we have we have clients in uh, thirteen different states. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, so for majority of our clientele is in Illinois. Uh, our largest clients are in California. So we and we have you know, our California, New York, New Jersey area. So we do we're we're, we're bi coastal and and we you know, we have clients in Montana, Kentucky, you name it. So yeah, we definitely can go and work with anybody. Is it is it possible for you to for the next question? If you tell us some of the work you do with athletes, would be more specifically. I mean, of course, you don't have to like say, "Oh, I work with this athlete or that." Yeah. yeah so with our athletes, um, we're, we really like to work with our athletes from the beginning, uh, mm-hmm. right before draft day. We get really built some really good relationships with 
uh, some agents, a brand managers, just people who are kind of that first person that a professional athlete engages with. Yes. And so we've been able to, like these, these, these folks, these agents, these are friends of ours, people that went to Northwestern. Again, I got to tell Northwestern has a great pipeline of successful individuals yes. in, in the field. Uh, but we were able to kind of get, when we bring on a, when we bring on an athlete, I'd say he's got, like, we got a few guys that got drafted uh, this week or last week. It's really, it's really first understanding who their nucleus is, right? Because when you, with these athletes, as soon as they get drafted in before, right, you know it's coming with a gang of people. Right. right. The first thing that we really want to understand with a young guy who's 19, 20, 21 years old, who's never handled a budget or most money in most cases ever. Right. It's about our first understanding who are the people around you? Who are the people that we know we're going to be engaging with? Mom, dad, uncle, other, whoever. Right. Um, and then being able to, to really tell them how the relationship is going to kind of the first, it's always about creating those boundaries, right? Like, here's what we do. Here's right. who we'll talk to about your money. Mm-hmm. We'll go from there, but we really take their, their, their signing bonus. We make sure we create a budget. Mm-hmm. Right, create boundaries. The budget is the biggest thing. That's athletes. It's fifty percent of those, that contract money that you see is that. That's all they take home. About fifty percent of that is take home. Exactly. Right. Right. Agent fees, mm-hmm. taxes, Uncle Sam. That's fifty percent of that contract is, is is out. So them understanding that the people around them understanding that and we kind of have a rule with our athletes that like we need you, especially in your first contract. You could be saving at least 85, 90% of your, uh, of your, every paycheck. That's got to go in savings or build up at six to 12 months savings. Uh, after that, we get them into some more of the unique stuff, some of the pre IPO stocks, some of the alternative investments that they hear. And I think guys like LeBron and uh, KD and Steph Curry, this new generation of athletes that are so mindful about their money and yeah. everything. Has really influenced the people that we get, the young guys we get to work with now. Mm. They've seen the horrible stories from broke. Yeah. Paul Walker. Yep. Anton Walker. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, okay, I don't want to put everyone on last, but. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But, but with those stories, you know, these young guys understand that. So it's really cool to be in a room with some of these rookies that got drafted and they're. They're not worried about buying a car first. They're not worried about buying a house. They're like, hey, how can we make this money? I know I'm about to pay all these taxes. How do we save more of this? And that's when you realize there's, the cult- there's been a culture change within these young athletes, which is perfect, perfect for us. Is there like a, I'm sorry, Patrick, is there like a common like resistance? Like, is there, is there any type of resistance or issue you have with this newer athlete? Because I, I just assume like they're like, no, I want to get jewelry and I want to get a car and I, I got I got to buy this house for my mom or my dad. Yeah, there we've been fortunate enough to not have too many too many of those situations. Um, and again, I want to give all that credit to the you know the, these young guys and their families that they come from that have. Pretty much have turned made it easier for us to kind of mold them into being more savvy investors and, and savers. Um, but there has been situations. I mean, I think it hurt, actually might happen even when they get that second contract or that third contract, where it gets kind of crazy, where it's cars or multiple homes, and you have to you have to really when they're young, they're willing to listen. 
right? They don't kind of know any better. They haven't been in the locker room too long where they hear the other big guys talk about what they have. And it's, I think that's such a difficult – I think it's just part of the culture, right, that we're in. You right. see what this person has, I should have it too. Even right. though we're playing in whole, we're in whole different categories financially. I think that's got to be one thing we remind our young guys is, look, like I know you're over there you know, chilling next to Russell Wilson with his beautiful with, – with Sierra driving three cars, but you're a rookie. You need to build your way up to that. Let's not skip any steps. Right, right. I think that's the biggest thing with them is just constant education. And that's the biggest thing that we want them to be is then a day we want to be financial independent. We don't want them having to call us for every single reason. We want them to use their heads and, and know, hey, this is the wrong reason, this is the wrong buy, or this is the right investment. Um, so that's really what I think has changed. And so there's not too much uh, resistance these days with our guys, at least. Okay. Okay. Oh, look, Patrick Julian, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh... Ooh, Patrick? No, it's your turn, Julian. Okay. I think well, number, we're on number four right now. Yeah. Uh, so what are the the basic financial rules that everyone should follow? Number one rule, don't, don't spend more than you make. Right? That I feel like that's such a common rule that people uh, – sometimes I'm like, well, why, no wonder you don't have anything in your bank account, man. You made $10 and you're trying to spend 11 And it's – like it's those things that that really basic rule of don't spend more than you make, and so many people forget to 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 uh, to factor in taxes after that and, and 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 social benefits that you're paying into to to make sure that you're not spending more than you make, and that's kind of the first thing that we lead with, and then we look at the budget. So creating your own budget, and and I think uh I think that about only. But, 20% of Americans know how much they spend on a monthly basis. Like if you were to ask, not going to ask you guys, but would you know right now how much you spend on a monthly basis? And if you don't know that, that's, that's an issue. Yeah. And do you know your fixed expenses more, more likely than your discretionary, but do you know what your fixed expenses are? And most Americans, about fifth Americans or four fifths of Americans wouldn't be able to tell you that answer right. Mm -hmm. So that right there is a huge problem. Uh, that is the biggest problem is, and it doesn't, there's, there's no, um, I'd say bias between how old you are or, or, or your race. It, we've met wealthy white, white folks who have tens of millions of dollars who don't know what their budget is. We have met, right, it's, it's, so it doesn't matter. It's more about just people taking the time to gather the budget. That's the number one thing. Basic rule. Don't spend more than you make. Create your budget. And I think beyond that is, you know, if you have savings after that, how do you then apply your savings appropriately? Well, the first thing that you should save towards is your emergency savings. That's the first place where access cash is available. Stash six, really depending on what you, everyone kind of knows and feels their job security, especially right now, to be, have six months of your, at least of your fixed expenses put away in a savings account in case you lose your job and COVID happens or whatnot. You have the six months to tap into because usually with, you can find, usually the job, your average job, unemployment is arranged with six to eight months. Mm -hmm. So that is an important fact to, to kind of keep in mind, hey, six to eight months of expenses. If you have a family and your expenses are less flexible to change, then you want to put about 12 months. Young folks like us, we can make extra sacrifice. I can stop watching Netflix. I can cancel my Hulu subscription. I can do all these little things. Maybe you have a family. And you're, it's harder to, you know, dial it down. You probably want to have more savings available. 
Can I ask you this, um, yeah, Oliver? Could you explain what a fixed income, um, fixed expenses are? Fixed expenses. So we like to kind of carry or like to categorize our our expenses as essential, non-essential. I love the I love how those words all matter now. Essential right. and aspirational, uh, in three buckets. And essential meaning your fixed expenses. Those are your utilities, your rent, things you need to pay to live. But there's no discretion about you one meaning having to pay these items or not. These are stuff that you have to pay Absolutely. or the lights are gonna go off. And so those are the so those are what we call fixed expenses. And so essential so non-essential, that could be where you have more discretionary um, kind of control over your over your budget, meaning like your haircuts, or how much you got to eat, shopping, all that. And we have our aspirational, it's like if if I can fulfill my my essential, my non-essential, and I now have some left over, my aspirational bucket, usually that falls into travel or very large purchases like a car or something like that. So those are how we split it up. But fixed expenses, those are the expenses that you need to pay to live. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, my fault. Uh, Patrick, go to the next one. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, did you start to actually answer some of the next questions we had coming up? Because what I was going to ask you is, you know, for someone who's more middle class, but you've kind of talked about the different things, but I guess for someone more middle class, uh, working class, where can they start with financial plan? But I know obviously you already said it already. Just don't spend more than you make that sort of thing. But is there anything else special that you would say for some people in our communities where money's a little bit tighter for them? Mm -hmm. So I think the budget is always a good place to start. I think what we always ask our clients is, you know, where, you know, what, what is the ultimate goal with your, with your money? Is it to support your family? Is it to raise a family? Is it to buy a house? Mm-hmm. It's, we can, you can find so many different ways to, to kind of make sure that these, these expenses, these goals are being able to be funded. Um, it's just always going to be, it's always going to start with your budget and your ability to have free cash flow. If there is, if you're paying, if you're going paycheck to paycheck, that's unfortunately the situation. And there's, <clears throat> without having to, and we always, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, paycheck, we never encourage somebody to go out and, and find credit to then maybe have an extra inflow of cash or available credit to, to, to live. We all find that that could, be a, that could be a trap. But for the middle and working class, the one thing that we always want to remember is that I think most people eventually want to think about retirement or having a nest egg available once, once you're done working. And my, my, my mentor in Maryland always said that no one's going to pay you to retire, especially our generation um, or Generation X or Y. Those, a pension is not going to exist for us. There is no, gonna, and I think it's one of the questions we were talking about. Social Security, yeah, especially after now, all the free money, the health is going around. You better believe that we're never going to, we're never going to participate in government funded uh, retirement benefits. So. Meaning that even though money might be tight, and if you do have, if you're able to save and then create a little nest egg in terms of your emergency savings, please, please make sure to contribute to your retirement account if you are able to have that. That includes if you're have an employee, if you're employed, max at least dump money into your 401k, especially if there's matching, because that's free money this company's giving you. There's there's nowhere else where. Someone, you can put money into an account and someone's going to match it 
or give you free money. That's you can leave that stuff in cash and it's still a return. So there is so tapping into your 401k, investing into that, or at least funding that, especially if there's a match, you're getting something in return from your employer. And that's going up tax-free or tax-deferred, excuse me. So you can build up and have a nest egg when you're done. I think that's the one thing that in our community, the black community especially, kind of we live paycheck to paycheck, but we think we're, we're really cash rich. Meaning we we have high salaries, but we don't. We're not great savers, and we're not saving the right vehicles. Um, and so I think after saving emergency savings, looking into investing or contributing to your four hundred one k or setting up an individual retirement account, an IRA, is another vehicle where you can start to kind of put money in for retirement. So that's one thing when we're 60, 70, 80 years old, right. we're not going to be able to make any more income or be part of the workforce. How are we going to live? Well, that's the 401, your 401k and IRA is exactly for that purpose. And that is a zero balance. You're going to be in trouble. So even if you might be, you might forego getting a car or buying something extra that month, that $100 or $200 you want to spend doing something else, put that in your IRA, put that in your 401k. Um, yeah. There's a long ways from that, uh, from popping into it, and you can start right now. Yeah, yeah. let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what an IRA um, Roth is? Can you explain that? Sure. So there's two. Well, there's there's two types of qualified retirement accounts or retirement accounts, right? It's an employer-based retirement account that's your 401k for a for-profit company, a 43b, which is for nonprofit organizations or schools. That's your um, employer-based uh, retirement plan. So those you can fund up to, IRS allows you to fund $19,000 a year in contributions to your 401k or four through employer-based plan. Um, and that's the one where we would encourage to invest in FERT or fund FERT if you have the ability, just if, especially if there's a matching uh, ability by your employer and there, you can contribute higher amounts. Now, once if you have if you're, if you're contributing to your 401k, there's another vehicle that you can use a uh, retirement account called an individual retirement account or IRA, and there's kind of two versions of that. And all the difference is between the 401k and IRA is that you are the owner of it. You own the IRA, where uh-huh. the 401k is owned and operated by the company and whatever fidelity wherever it's held. That's where the 401k is. The IRA is yours, and you can fund up to if you were under the age of 50, you can fund up to $6,000 a year into your IRA, individual retirement account. And the IRA works exactly like a 401k, meaning it's tax deferred, meaning you contribute, you can grow, and the taxes are deferred until you actually withdraw the money. And you can, withdraw, or you can start withdrawing money out of your 401k or your IRA at 59 and a half years old, so 60 years old. Without penalty, if you withdraw your money out early, you're going to hit. You're going to hit with a 10 percent penalty early withdrawal uh, hit. Plus, you're going to have to pay the taxes on whatever you withdraw. So the IRA kind of serves as a vehicle next to your 401k as an extra place where you can you can fund your retirement. Even if you don't have a 401k, you can still always have an IRA as long as you have earned income or cash in a let's say your checking account. You can contribute yearly to an IRA. And so that's where we, you know, we say if you max out your 401k, max out your IRA if possible, 
that's twenty six thousand in IRA and basically retirement savings you can put away. Yeah. And what if you are under a certain income level, you can actually deduct your contributions from your taxable income. So if I make one hundred twenty hundred thousand dollars a year, right. and I put twenty six thousand dollars into my in my four hundred one k IRA, I'm only going to get taxed on twenty on twenty four or seventy four thousand dollars income. So I'm going to pay less in taxes as well. Uh, oh, Gotcha. We can stop the podcast. Like, I've learned so much. Um, I'm, I'm with, um, Julian, you want to do number six? Yeah, I go for it. Yeah. Where, where, where do you, first of all, so it's like a one question, but in two questions. So mm-hmm. where do accumulator starts? And then what's an accumulator? So an accumulator is anybody... I think it's where it comes from accumulator to a saver to an investor. That's kind of the, I would say the natural, the natural progression. Um, and right now, most people, right, first, I think probably anyone who's age 25 and, and 35 is in the kind of accumulation phase. We're accumulating your assets. We're finally saving something after our paycheck. And that is just, I think that that is the first part of being turning it or basically phasing into an accumulator. So, Right, age demographic definitely, you know, 25 to 35, when you start actually having some access savings, you are starting to put money into the, the retirement saving buckets that I mentioned. So that's really that accumulation phase that allows you to then become a saver by putting that money away and investing it, uh, or being ready to invest it. That gets you from an accumulator to a saver to an investor. So accumulation is just that, hey, I'm starting to actually not live paycheck to paycheck. And starting to put some success some cash away. Okay. What what's the opposite of uh, an accumulator? A broke? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it, yeah, pretty much. It's there's a there's a lot more examples of of, of a broke than the, oh, uh, than the accumulator. That's that's for sure. Like you know, purposely, you know, like uh, ruining your money. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's some people can get out of their own way. That's what I've learned a lot. Is some people, it's man, bad habits. People always say bad habits are hard to shake, but better than you know, building good habits. Right. I feel like so many people, um, rather, you know, due to circumstance, right, most of the time, but just not being educated, just have bad habits and end up, having a very difficult time getting to become an accumulator and then moving on the ladder. How do we get out of these habits? Like I'm, I'm from a culture in an era where growing up here, like I love Jays. Like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. say this, like lucky, real lucky. My parents didn't buy that for me. Oh, oh, let me. And here's the thing: I had an entrepreneurial spirit where I would sell candy in high school just to buy tennis shoes. You know what I'm saying? Like we're just a part of this culture where it's like I need more of it. Right. Like, so you like you have like the fact that you hustled and were entrepreneurial. Like that's a good habit. Right. All you needed to do was add that habit of of saving accumulation, and you would like. So it's. I feel like so many of us have or have one or the other. Uh, right. to mind to do and kind of stay disciplined. And right. you, know, you ask like, why are these habits built? And as as, you, as I'm looking at, you know, who we serve, 
it is how what how it's educated to us, how it's passed down. Like, right, you can't. It's hard to. It's easy to. It's easy to get rich, but it's hard to stay rich, and it's easier, uh, it's more difficult to be wealthy. And uh, you also, there's a big difference between being rich and being wealthy. Can I, Oliver? Can I ask you this? I'm sorry, Patrick and Julian. Does it seem like when you were at Merrill Merrill Lynch, so you were probably working with predominantly mostly non-black with yeah. wealth, right? It seems like they're more worried about the future, where we're worried about the now, right? Like it's like, yo, I need it comes out next week. I gotta get it. Yep. Yeah, I think I think that's the biggest part. It's just the the lifestyle. Um, I think I think it's also because a lot of the people that I work with, they had much of the older folks, they had really stable salaries. Like right. they, weren't, they weren't wage or contractors. Where I think that's most of what. Probably African American, uh, African African American, excuse me, uh, workers are as wages, and it's it's not as dependable income coming in. So where there's less earning security, there's less. I would say you, unfortunately, there's a less. It's not as a big of a deal to want to save in the corporate. It's more like you said. It's what's in front of me. Let me get it because I don't know if I'm able to get this later on. Um, it is more about living in the now versus looking into the future. Because um, I got to say, with like with my with my parents, they didn't really know what where we were going to end up. Like right, they they were just about creating opportunities for their kids and less about thinking about themselves and their retirement. And right. how they're they're like, we got them over here, got them in school, they're doing well. Right, our job is good. Um, but now I'm you know reaching back to my like, hey, like I want you guys to, I want my dad to retire. I want him to chill. I want them to go back. And be able to, to to travel back to Europe and back go back to the Congo and right. do that. Um, but I think again, so many of it has to do with education, how we were raised, and Absolutely. we build habits based off that. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel that. Question, or Patrick? I'm sorry. Oh wait, no, Julian, you were saying something. No, no, I feel like that's totally right. It's all about you know getting the right information and uh, financial education, most mostly because. Especially again in our culture, those are the things that um, we don't highlight enough. You know, highlight. You know, like uh, finances and stuff like that. Like in the, in the you know in the Congolese culture, as soon as you get you you get money, you're the devil. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, right. You know, like you sold out or something. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like oh man, you bougie now. It's like you know, <laughs> just. And that's the thing too, like when you talk about money, it seems like you're being sort of arrogant or right. pompous, but it's like, no, this is a way of life. Like not money's a way of life, but this is how you can use money as a way to make your life better and other people's life better around you. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it. We just like, nobody talks about even how to, like, Yalba, what's a you said don't spend more than you um you make, but is there I've heard there's like a way we're supposed to say we're supposed to be like your bill should be thirty percent of what you make a month. Like like do you like is there Yeah, there's I mean I yeah, definitely there's certain um like they say your um like your rent or your mortgage shouldn't be more than twenty percent of your net income. Like don't because like when you think about your budget, what's the first thing you as a human you gotta do is like find shelter. Like, right. How much do I pay for it? Or a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. All right, that's kind of the the rule of thumb. That you never want to have. I mean, it depends. Obviously, it's difficult if you live in places like San Francisco and New York. Oh yeah, oh yeah, hell yeah, right, Chicago. 
Uh, <laughs> but it is, that is usually what you want to kind of assume is I don't want to spend more than 20%, 20, 30% of the high mark of my rent or my, my home expense, you know, uh, the net of my net of my paycheck, monthly paycheck. So that's one rule we kind of can start at. I mean, your biggest expense, it is your rent, it is usually your mortgage. And so that is one of the rules of thumb that we, we kind of say if you're a, you know, right out of school or you're getting your first home or you're going to start, you know, getting out your own, you're renting your own apartment or whatnot. That's where we say, all right, look at your paycheck, look at the net of it. At times by you know, 0.2%, uh, do not let that go, your rent go above that if you want to live comfortably. Because we know your fixed expenses, right, the, the light bill, the utilities, you know, your car note, that probably is going to be an other third. And then your discretionary spending, you want to keep that about 10 or 20% of your, of your, of your net paycheck. That's your haircuts, your food and the groceries. And then the remaining 10%, you want to hopefully stay. You hopefully want to stay. You want to keep that twenty percent if you're, but like ten percent, you want to be able to to start putting that away and building up your nest egg, your emergency savings, and eventually you'll see that you can start to save elsewhere after you build that up. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I'm taking notes. You have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm taking all these. Notes. We should charge this. I know. Wait, we're taking it off live right now. Forget that. Yeah. Anybody right. watching, you want it, you're going to have to hit us with a rack. Right, right, right. <laughs> we'll find over here. Three, three, three racks, right? <laughs> um, um, so, I, I mean, you kind of hinted on this, um, yeah, over like, um, about like being the first and second generation of African um, immigrants. Mm-hmm. How, is there any like wealth accommodations or management challenges like unique to our like community? I know we kind of talk about like we don't talk about money, but is there any way you can like elaborate from what you see as a financial planner? Yeah, I think what's happening now, and I think it's in both in you know the African culture, but just the African American black culture in general, mm. we're finally starting to see people work together. And uh, we actually host uh, one of our one of our partners. He does a master class on on investing for our athletes. Mm. And his biggest thing was like, man, like you. We as black people, especially athletes sometimes, and I think black people in general, again, not talking about what we're doing and not collaborating on right. building wealth together, where the white community and was definitely the Jewish community had figured that out. Like, we're better when we work and we have a think tank of people talk. Let's buy real estate together. Let's go into some of these deals together. Let's, let's create funds to support our businesses. And you're, I think it's, that can be, that is just a black cultural thing. I think it's an African thing. Right. It's not at least issue where we, unfortunately, we don't collaborate enough. And so I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that I see, like I saw my parents go through. Like, yeah, they would talk to their family members, but it would ne- be never about business. It was just about how's the kids doing? How's the family doing? Da, da, da. Oh, my dog does. That's it. Yeah. And I think that is one of the biggest things that we as a community need to engage in and get better at is collaboration. Uh-huh. And again, pertaining to the individual who teaches the athletes, like you guys are some of the wealthiest black people in, in the world, in America. How many of you guys talk about business or have gone into a, a actual, well, not just a, a car wash or a barbershop idea, but an actual, you know, revenue producing, in, another income stream producing investment together. And it's, no one raised their hands. And when you see all these other 
wealthy white Americans being able to kind of gather together, build funds, and that's why they own everything. I think that's the biggest thing that we need to change. Uh, culture shift is communication and collaboration is the biggest thing that needs to. Yeah, Oliver, you're an athlete, a former athlete. Let me ask you this. We we're talking about off the air about the little bit of the Jordan dog. We can talk about that off camera. Yeah. This is what you're talking about, right? Let yep. me ask you, you know how the old school from the 90s, how they get mad at this generation mm-hmm. about how they're not as competitive. Could I correlate the fact that businesses like yours that are like getting these athletes together, talking about work together, does mm-hmm. that play a part in their competition where it's like, yo, I, I'm in business with this guy, so I'm not going to foul him hard in this mm-hmm. area. Where's uh, uh, that's that's interesting. I've never thought about. So we have a couple of guys. Like we have a few uh, guys who are on the same team, right? Same right. Team, team or uh, who like three or four guys that play on the same team. And it's again these. I think these young, these new generation, this new wave of athletes. They think different. They they see the big picture, mm-hmm. and so they. So I, I think they're they're different. They're competitors on the field when they're going against practice or games. That's a whole, they're a whole nother animal. They're, that's a different type of person. But they, they see now, and I think one of the numbers is uh, the stats of LeBron. LeBron's going to make like, at the end of the day, like, what's what? like 125 million in, 147 million in um, salary, but yeah. 1.75 billion in endorsements and off the field mm-hmm. contracts. And so it's these guys who see like, you know, my playing days are numbered. Right. Like, you know, it's, it's, and I saw some of these stats for athletes, you know, for NBA, 78% of the NBA players go broke in five years, file for bankruptcy, 60%, or excuse me, 78 NFL, 60% for NBA players, and and MLB players, they go bankrupt four times quicker than the average American. So these guys are have usually playing careers between three and seven years. They make close to, if they get to that seven-year mark, usually five to $25 million in, in total earnings. And it's all being done before their age, before they're 35. And so they now realize, look, I can be a great athlete, but at the end of the day, like these teammates of mine or these competitors of mine could be my business partners for the next 50 years. Mm. And not just a teammate or a rival for the net, for this, this short five year period of my life. Right. And I think that's what guys are realizing is, yeah, you're my competitor on the field, but man, off the field, you and I can make a lot of money. And it's going, that's the money that's going to take us create, create generational wealth. Um, right. and that's, I think the mindset that's changed a lot within our, our athletes. Incredible. Um, uh, Pat, Julie, you guys want to get number eight or, or Pat, well, Pat let me get, get the next one because you skipped over me, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited. No, no, I'm just playing with you, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually, you know, it's funny. I think you'll probably answer the like the next three questions with just this one question. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, we've been hearing you've been just giving us great knowledge. So, for the people who are now inspired to go out and try to get a financial planner, find a financial planner, what are the I, questions that should they ask them to vet them to make sure that they're legit? Absolutely. I think so. The number one thing is we get. I think when, when I started in the business, we were more, we had to go grab clients versus getting referrals. And the way that we were able to do that was we actually asked all of our potential clients is, have you talked to another advisor yet? Have you, do you actually know what an advisor relation, advisor client relationship is? Um, 
if you have any have you had any experience with it. So kind of understanding, we're trying to meet our clients or people who are asking about getting help. Where we're we meeting them, do they understand really what our occupation and role is? Do they think we're stockbrokers that we're just going to call them once every couple of months and pitch a stock, or do they expect like us, what we do, a full comprehensive financial plan where we're breaking down your budget, your your income, your savings, your cash flow, and then we we incorporate investments if it's appropriate. So the number one thing you got to ask your advisor when you're looking for one is kind of get you and understanding for yourself, what do you need? What are you really looking for? What are the answers you're trying to, or the questions you're trying to get answered? I think that can first lead you to the type of advisor you want. It's different. Like we're not just, we're, we were not just, um, not everyone works like us. Some people are very much investment uh, leading, right? They want to hedge funds, private equity. They want to lead with, hey, we got great investment strategy. Or we lead with, hey, we are all about financial planning. So understanding what, you kind of want is really important. That's kind of the first question you got to ask yourself and ask that advisor, what type of advisor, what's your business model? Um, I think the biggest thing that people forget to ask is fees. I think fees are very important. How much somebody, are you looking to have an advisor that you have to pay money to? Or maybe do you need someone just to help you set up your initial financial plan and then you're good. Then you're able to kind of see the whole picture and then you can go use one of these really, some of the great tools out there like Acorn, and so, um, and Robinhood and kind of piece together your investment strategy after that. So there's, I think there's, there's, there's a lot like Bank America has the, um, the Khan app, Khan Academy. So there's different, all these different apps that everyone has that can kind of teach you, uh, like mm-hmm. money. Um, a really great platform that's actually, uh, for women out there, Elebest, E-L-L-E-Best is a really great platform for any women, like women-based platform built by women, and it's one of the best platforms for anybody, but that's just one, I, another one I like to highlight. But, excuse me, so, so again, the questions you ask is, what type of advisor are you? You know, you yourself have to ask yourself, what are you looking for? Um, the fiduciary, what type of, like, do you have fiduciary responsibilities? Because uh, some some people, some advisors, like in the Merrill offices or some of these wirehouses, they aren't, what we call fiduciaries. We have to do everything again in the best interest of the client. They can make there. There's a little nuance where they make the best decision based off of the information versus for versus the client. Oh. Um, and that's literally okay. based off our registration, uh, which is the SEC thing. So understanding are you a fiduciary is another big question you need to ask your advisor. Um, and just wondering, with that being yeah. a fiduciary, does that mean you being a fiduciary? Is there like do you, are there any legal ramifications yeah. for you? Like, yeah. if- our 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 level of scrutiny, or basically what the standards we adhere to, are much higher than you would at a, at a wirehouse when you're not a fiduciary. Where it's like, yeah, I made that recommendation based on information, not taking into account costs, right, liquidity, risk. That's what you can do if you're not a fiduciary. We, yeah. if like if stuff hits a fan and clients like the, the SEC or the FinRoc does a audit of us and they see us making inappropriate um, recommendations or looking or all of a sudden they see, man, this client's costs or fees are really high. We could get, we lose our license for that, where that wouldn't be the situation for a non-fiduciary. So those were just higher, there's just higher standards, higher qualifications. I've heard, I'm sure you guys have seen like the certified financial planner certification. that's really, really big and pressing now. Um, so those are some other qualifications that just, 
kind of give you uh, the advisor has to stay at a higher level of standard or have a higher level of standard. Um, but then I think it also gives clients a little more assurance. Okay, this person's really looking out for me and taking everything into consideration. Yeah. And just another thing, another thing is like, what type of clientele do you have, right? If you, what's your demographic of clients? You know, what's the demographic of your firm? What are, how many assets under managed do you have? Like, are you working with a small um, or more boutique uh, advisory, like maybe ourselves? Or are you working with, you know, Merrill Lynch, where you have, you know, the, the 2,000 advisors working with multiple people? So also your fit. Do you some like something a little more boutique, like what we're doing, a little more personalized? And I'm I'm, I'm advertising ourselves right now. Hey, do, you want to hey, do it, do it. Go ahead. Kind of do another, another in a giant bucket that is the wirehouses and all that. So that's some of the big things you want to understand about um, an advisor if you're looking for one. Um, yeah, Oliver, could you clarify? Do you work with? I, I know you work with individuals. Do you work with businesses as well? With wealth management? We work with our clients' businesses. So oh. a few clients are entrepreneurs and own their own businesses. Um, so we help them structure those. We we really help our clients do everything. So we have a client that, um, like you guys have seen, I'm going to give him give him a shout out. Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Jamal, good, Jamal, great movie. How about gentrification? Gentrification. Yep, gentrification. So he one of the stars in the movie is uh, Jamal True Love. He's an exoneree. He did. Yeah. He did. Uh, oh. They're all being evicted in San Francisco. So, kind of using his uh, him as, as an example of the range that we work with him or most of our clients is right. We get them started. He gets a settlement. We create his budget. He wants to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. He wants to start his own music label, kind of just like media label. And so, helping him like, create the LLC, put all the legal docs to work. We have his have an accountant set up for him to actually manage and do all the bookkeeping. So we do help all that initial setup if a client or person doesn't have their own resources to get their business up and running. We have people within our company and our, our, our partners that help set all that stuff up business-wise for our clients. So he does. So we do all the his private investing and his money management, personal money management. Then we also have set him up with you know his company Trifecta um, to help him kind of manage that part of his his life because that's where he wants to start collecting his income. And so we work with our clients, especially if they're entrepreneurs, how to complement your personal, usually with, like me, an entrepreneur, my personal finances are my businesses, is my business finance. So yeah, we do work uh, with our clients' businesses if they are an entrepreneur. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I don't um, know, Julian, Pat, which of, so I mean, he pretty much, I'm oh, good. Uh, so I'm gonna say, I mean, ten and eleven, I think, kind of go together. So, Julian, you can kind of almost knock yeah. them off at the same time. So, what would be like the you know the difference and the you know the description of the active management versus you know passive management? Yep. So that this is the question that we're getting a lot, and something that um, is really important to understand. So, passive management, or yeah, passive management. That is essentially when, when you hear about these ETFs, so exchange exchange traded funds or index funds. This is so these were kind of, these were created in the in the nineties to let you know people who didn't know what stock individual stock to pick, right? Didn't know should I should buy Apple today, should I sell Microsoft like tomorrow? People just said, you know what? Give me 
exposure to the market. I can be well diversified. But I don't have to worry about the day-to-day active management of picking, selling, and buying stocks. Mm-hmm. It gives me diversify, give me into the market. So that's what we call passive management. And the vehicles that people that you, that you get or that allow you to be passively managed into equities and equities just being stocks, we're talking about stocks here, are the ETF. So you can buy the S&P 500, right? SPY is, a, is probably the most common index fund that there is, SPY. It just tra- that gives you the full range of the S&P 500. So today, the S&P 500 was, was down, you know, 12 points, a few points. So then your investment is going to be down the exact same amount. So you are literally going up and down with that index. And that index can be any of your benchmark, like S&P 500, Dow Jones, Russell 3000, NASDAQ, or it can also be a particular sector. So you can own a, a ETF that actually basically tracks or buys you all the S&P 500 tech companies. So that, that, that ETF is actually doing very well. You can buy a basket or an index of, um, of either a benchmark or a certain sector. You can have an ETF in energy stock. You can have an ETF in, in oil. So all these different things where you have to pick the individual stock like Exxon or whoever the, that in, within the oil industry, you just buy the index that tracks all of them. And you, you can just kind of let it go. And so that is <coughs> And where active is the exact opposite. You are actually going in, you have a manager or yourself that goes in and buys actively individual stock names. And I'll, that that takes a lot of skill. Usually we when we do that for clients, we hire a manager to go ahead and do that. Um, but those are the big differences and what's good versus the other active management is more expensive because usually you have to hire a manager to go in and trade your stocks. Also, the tax consequences of buying and selling stocks is going to also affect your performance. Where in the index, you're usually putting money in and you're letting it go. And so you're not getting as much, I guess, tax consequences in that. And the last thing about the two, the two is when, what should we use now? Um, what bit, during what market environment do you want to use one over the other? So usually passive or active management outperform passive management during downturns, during volatile times. So right now is where we're actually shifting a little bit more into active management because of the COVID, like so many industries within the S&P, companies within S&P 500 are being short, right? Airline industry, airline stocks, stocks, travel and leisure. So this is the time where active management, being able to say, I guess, we actually go in and I'm going to actually select these tech stocks or these IT stocks now. So those are going to be, the, the active management is where, this is where they make their money is A, you want to protect me on the downside, meaning if S&P drops 10%, active managers better not be dropping that same level as the indexes. They should probably protect better on the downside because of the ability to buy and sell out of certain positions. And even during up market that we have been for the last you know, 10 years, passive management has been outperforming because everything has been going straight up. So active management is hard to outperform the stock market when it's rising just because everything is good, everyone's throwing money into index funds, and they're just flying. Now everybody pulled their money out of index funds because they saw the, the sharp decline, 
and then they want to now they wonder like what do I do now? Here's where you need to make sure you rotate if you're able to active management where you're picking some names that you see are really attractive, right? The Zooms, the uh, Peloton, the Microsoft, Apple came out with their earnings. So the tech stocks really I'm I'm really liking these days. That's where you kind of outperform is during volatile market and mm-hmm. also mitigate the downside, which is a lot of people don't forget like if you lose fifty percent, you don't have to you have to make a hundred percent just to break back even. Right, right. Oh, I, I made I lost fifty percent. If I make fifty percent back, it's gonna no. You got you're halfway there. So sometimes you win by not losing. Like that mm-hmm. is the biggest thing. And clients will always remember their worst year, and they won't remember their best year. They will always remember, man. Oh wait, terrible year. But if you ask any of our clients when was your best year, they would be like, I have no idea. But they will always remember their worst year. And so that's another thing you always gotta remember when investing is sometimes it's better to protect the downside and give up a little bit of the upside. Because the downside is really hard to come back from. Because that's when you make the bad decisions. When you lose money, you're like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I buy? That's why you need to have a mixture of both because the passive and active. But that's why you want active usually during this time, this time period. Okay. okay. Um, I guess. Um, I guess. Is this the uh, this last question? Or well, it's like, is it possible to outperform the market and then, and then those, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's possible to outperform the market if you have right some act. If you're if the market, let's say your whatever your excuse me your benchmark is. So if you're mostly the benchmark that people use to determine if you're the stock market is the S and P five hundred or the Russell three thousand, right? really shows you how the total market is doing. And you can outperform them right by active management right now being a little more conscientious, able to find those discounted stocks and being able to ride those up higher. Um, when you have an index fund and you your, your benchmark is the SP 500, you're not going to outperform the SP 500 if you own the uh, SPY, right? So you can outperform the market if you have some active management, and you're invested in some other asset classes. So right um, now, like other asset classes might be like fixed income or bonds. Those aren't performing very well, but that's another way to diversify, maybe get extra returns. Uh, so we look at all types of assets to diversify our client portfolios. Right now, right, we like equities because of how low they got and where they're headed. And we kind of, right, equities are for, the investments like for forward thinking. You kind of think like, what is the future? Do you think the future is bright, or do you think it's it, it's dim? And that's how you could invest. We're the thinking where the future is brighter, but you can't. The reason why it's, it's always difficult to people say time the market. Can you time the market? When do you realize when it's time to go in? It's a possible time to market. It's all uh, about knowing. The biggest thing about investing is you invest and have your money available when you need it. And if you know that or I have this $10,000 to invest and I don't need this money for the next you know, three, five years, okay, let me be a little bit more aggressive because I have low liquidity needs and I can invest temp- at a time. So you don't want to put 10000 in all at once, especially during volatile periods when markets went up and down, up and down. You kind of want to put $2,000 maybe every every five every every week for five weeks so you're catching the market hopefully going up and down but not let's say if you you put your money in two weeks ago when that the best week in in the last 40 years in the market great 
But if you had done it six weeks ago, we had the worst day since 1929. So wow. it's about timing, <laughs> dollar cost averaging into the market. So you're taking what you know you want to invest and investing it periodically, same tranches over time. So you're not hitting one massive decline or one massive incline, which would be better, but you're you're mitigating the risk by spending that getting into the market over time. So we always okay. encourage you to invest periodically, especially now. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what the movement's going to be. We know it's going higher, but it's having its dips on the way up. Right. Being able to invest periodically is really important as well. Okay. How you can outperform the market is by active management, diversifying, by getting into maybe real estate or uh, gold, having different asset classes that might be zig while the, while the market's going down, these are going up. Uh, so we have found a few investments that have outshined drastically during this time um, that have really kind of mitigated the losses people have had in the stock market. Yeah. Uh, is there, um, Yolver, is there any takeaways during this time? Like, what is, is there any tips you can give um, to people during this time? Yeah, so I think the the biggest thing is this money, habits, and investing is it's all emotional. And I always say there's the two most intimate things about somebody that you don't ask, right? How much money you get or how healthy are you? Like those are the two things like, whoa, whoa, like right. people are uncomfortable going to see their doctor and going to see their financial life. Like those are the two people that you like, how am I doing? Is this Am I doing all right? You right. get the checkup, or you're good. Um, there's also the two people that can make you feel the most happy leaving their offices are financial advisors and doctors as well. Right. Mm-hmm. It's all about, and this is the time as everybody is really anxious and kind of fearful, and, and the future is unpredictable. It's about being able to control the controllables, and that's what we always say to our clients. It's like you can't really control what the stock market does. You can't control it. You can't. Unfortunately, you can see that your job is not always there for you as well, the economy. What can you control right now is your expenses, how you're spending your money. And that's how everyone right now should look at a time where hopefully none of we're not spending as much as we are. To kind of take a look back this, this quarter and in 2020 and look at your spending habits in your budget. This is the best time to put together your budget. I've probably put together three different budgets. You know, during this these last three weeks, just like okay, maybe we change this or we change that. Um, but this is a perfect time for reset. Economy is hit a reset. Society is hit a reset. Um, this is time for you to really look down on your budget and see what can be cut out, what is essential, what is non-essential, and what is aspirational, and start to structure your cash flow based off of that. Create accounts on those three different uh, categories. And I think that is. The one thing is to don't be afraid to look under the hood. It might, it might be ugly, right? right? It might be ugly, but at least you know, and there's always steps you can take to fix the problem, mm. to learn, and there's always help there if you need it as well, right? There's always help there. There's always help with programs that you get online, people like us, like me, uh, and our firm. And we, we meet you where you're at. You, you're, you're not having to come in with piles and piles of money. We have a program for everyone to get in place to kind of get started. And that's all people need to do is they need to know where to start. And so we can provide that and a lot of different programs online to do that as well. Now. 
Okay. All right. Go, um, go. You know, we do have some Q and A's like uh, that. Some some extra um, additional questions. Julie, you want to ask that first one because this is absolutely. Uh, okay. Wait, hold on. Because we got some people who actually came in on like Facebook and. So I'll post the first one on the screen. Um, I mean, Oliver, you already started to answer this question anyway, but if there's anything that you want to add on top of it, so there you go, Julian. How has this pandemic affected your, your firm and your customer? Yeah, uh, how has it affected our firm? So it has affected our firm. We lost, I mean, most firms probably lost a bit of their assets under management uh, because of just the, the stock hit that we took. And because we have a more relatively younger clientele who have a little bit more of risk appetite, um, and therefore they're a little more heavier allocated towards stocks, they, they took a, like the AUM took a hit. But the one positive thing about that is because they are, our clients are on a younger scale, we're between ages 25 and 40, um, they, they didn't, they didn't forget about it as much, right? They understood, okay, we took a hit. 2020 is going to be bad. 2021 probably going to be better. But again, I don't need that liquidity, that that money right now. So I understand that it's not time to panic because Oliver and Annie and our whole, it's always about, that's what we lead with financial planning, right? We, we have a system, our financial plan will, will run scenarios for our clients that takes into account there will be market downturns, there will be volatility. So we, we run worst case scenarios for clients. Like what if the market went down 50% like it did in 08, 09? Can, right, right. can your goals still be met? Okay, yes, they can. Great. So we already knew who would have suffered with this type of decline. And, and for us, none of our clients did. And the really exciting thing was our clients were like, oh, this is the time I should buy, right? I'd sell, right. Like, like sell high, buy low. So most of our clients called up and were like, isn't this the time we should start getting back in? So we actually started to start buying back equities essentially like mid-March, when even before we hit the bottom on March 23rd. So mm -hmm. again, we knew if you, if you start investing in two months, you're too late, right? You could be too late to party. It was going to be, it's hard to get the timing, but our, our clients have been really responsive and really great. Uh, so it hasn't really affected us in terms of our clientele. They've been really, again, they, they know, they've been really, I think we've been able to teach them well about moments like this. Uh, as a firm of COVID, right, Zooms, we're talking to clients more than ever. Like, if you don't hear from your advisor during this time, you need to get a new advisor. Mm. Um, like this is the time where you need to be talking to your clients. Like, you need to make the rounds that first week when shit it, when stuff hit the fan. Uh. That's a, a red flag. And so that is, so we are in constant, that's what's changed, just more communication. Right? We know clients are at home, so we're sending them uh, gifts. Like, we've got them a little tic-tac-toe boards. Uh. Can, like, keep their mind busy. So right now, it's just about so that's kind of what the COVID has done for our firm. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, Palace, the next question? Okay. Up on the screen? Oh, okay. okay. So what tips do you recommend for saving and building financial stability during COVID-19? Any tips on what to do with the stimulus check by Fit Body by Ashley? Holla. <laughs> stimulus check. Stimulus check, man. Uh, so... Yeah. Saving, like this is, like I mentioned before, this is the best time to save uh, because of low expenses. If you if you happen to still have your same income, um, so the best thing for you to do for savings right now is, like I met, like I said, if you're able, we always want you to start with saving at least ten percent a month 
on the low end, 20% on the ideal end of, of money, net money right now, um, should be put into a savings account and built up that emergency savings. I mentioned that you want to have enough savings, uh, probably around six months worth of your fixed expenses, fixed expenses you want to have saved up for, for situations like this. If you're able to save beyond that, then we want to start looking at tapping into the retirement accounts before you jump into investing into uh, a Robinhood or a taxable for a brokerage account. So it's always emergency savings if you're able to fund that right now and look for accounts that have some high yield, not so high yield, but higher yields. Like there's bank accounts that will give you 0.001% where it's, it's nothing's happening. But there are better accounts out there that like Ally, Ally Bank, that's a really good, has a great savings account rate, a 1.35% right now on their savings account. That's more than stock, like regular bonds are paying. Um, there's a Goldman Sachs uh, Marcus, also very high yield, high uh, yield uh, savings account, and then Capital One. So if you're looking to put money away where it's still giving you, it's still in cash, but at least giving you better than the, than the national average, look at those three accounts or the banks for your savings account. And then again, if you're able to start contributing into a retirement account, start off with the 401k or an employee-sponsored one so you can hopefully get a match and get free money put into your account. Uh, and after that, then the IRA. And if you after that, then we can talk about taxable investing and getting into some index funds to start or, or looking at some more. If you're really, really in, uh, into investing and wanted to pick stocks, then I will recommend apps like Robinhood or Acorn or Talking to Advisor. Okay. Oh. For a stimulus check, I think it's save it if you don't need it. Again, like that should be added to whatever that first bucket is. If the emergency savings bucket that that goes into, then put it there. If it goes to paying off debt, high right. interest debt, put it there first. Before before the savings bucket, high interest rate debt, put it towards that because that's going to minimize. The debt that you the cat or increase your your, your cash flow on a month to month basis. So maybe apply to a credit card which you've been paying the minimum payment for for the last two years and it's slowly creeping up. So look at some reducing some of your high, uh, high interest debt. And that's another tip right now because of the the government assistance or right, the PPP. Um, Look at freeze if you have own a mortgage. If you have a mortgage, call your bank and see if you can actually put a freeze on your mortgage. If you're struggling to keep up with that, because actually banks are accepting freezes on their mortgage, you're not they're not going to charge you interest on it. The same with credit cards and car loans. So look to see if you are kind of struggling to keep up with the bills on the debt side. Call that financial institution and see if you can get it deferred for the next you know at least six months. I've seen as long as six months until this all carries over. Mm -hmm. Um, go to the next question. Go ahead, Joel. Okay, I am late to the party, so you might have mentioned this already. But at what income level do you think one should hire a financial advisor? Uh, so I, I don't think there's a. I think income level is actually the one. The one I think. Um, I think that probably called you to go think go see an advisor first, it's your cash flow. If you start seeing some positive cash flow, uh, if you start seeing the ability to actually save money outside of your emergency savings, that is a sign that you might be wanting to start to 
to do something beyond just saving in cash. I want to talk to the advisor about, okay, where else can I put my money or not I have say my emergency savings set up. So it's more about the, I would say your assets, your available assets, how much money you have, or your net, your increase of net cash flow, which could be like if you have higher income, you should hopefully have uh, more available cash, but that also depends on how much you spend as well. Um, so I think that's when it's more of a asset-based decision to go see a advisor or a, um, hey, I have this cash here, with access cash flow coming in. My trigger you to go see an advisor versus your income. Um, I also think any major um, life situation, right? If you're buying a house, you can consult with a mortgage broker or financial advisor. Is this the right house? Is this the right amount? I should be paying for this. I'm I'm getting married. Right? Maybe how do I call? Like I have a part my partner. How do we start talking about? I won't do that right now. So it's about these life moments that might. That's usually when people reach out to us. Like. I just, um, I just finished off asking student loans. I finally get all this money. Like finally, I can get to put some of the work now. Or hey, I'm getting married, or I'm buying a house, or I'm having my first child, or all these different life moments. Those are the time when you need to hopefully reach out to someone just to check the temperature of how, how, what you should do. Um, so I think those are more important things to look at in terms of determining if it's time for you to see an advisor versus your income. Um, what's, this, uh, what's the next question, Patrick? Who are my investment in? Uh, <laughs> hey, really? Who say do, hey, man, do it. Do it. Do it. Do it right, man. Say it the way he typed it. I'm from Guarfón, Cabela. Come on. You got to do it right, man. Come on. I don't know. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come Investment IA. There it is. Okay. Garçon Capable. So, which is a man capable man. Okay. But yeah, no, he actually has a question though. Hold on. Yeah. What do you think of Robin? Oh, what does he think of Robinhood and TD Ameritrade? Okay, so TD Ameritrade is actually where we hold our clients' assets. That's our custodian. Mm-hmm. So we, all of our clients' assets, the majority of them, some of our other funds, but that's where we, that's our bank or excuse me, our custodian where we, manage our clients' assets. So TD Ameritrade is, um, I would say, here's the difference between TD Ameritrade and Robinhood. Robinhood is a kind of a robo-advisor. Um, and what is a robo-advisor? It's a platform that you can go in, ask you a questionnaire, hey, I'm you know, 34 years old, I have this income, this much in assets, help me create my portfolio. So it's, right, it's, all, it's all based off a system and algorithm. And so those are very, those are, I would say, investor-friendly, individual investor-friendly that's trying to start to build an investment portfolio. But TD Ameritrade, that is more of, there's not as much of, there's no robo-advisor aspect to TD Ameritrade to the quality Robinhood. Yes, there's some model um, portfolios they put together, but in terms of teaching you and, and kind of curating your portfolio more efficiently, and that's really its purpose, is Robinhood. TD Ameritrade uh, is someone who kind of knows what to do. Like I can open up a brokerage account at TD Ameritrade and I can start trading my own. Uh, it's not going to be as edu, you know, it's not going to lead with education as much. So I think if you're starting out and you want to just learn about investing in stocks and kind of getting dipping your foot in, use Robinhood. It's also cost effective. TD Ameritrade costs a lot more money. Um, there's a trading fees, right? Trading costs are less around Robinhood. 
So kind of for the new investor that wants to keep things low cost and educational and needs more direction, Robinhood, TD Ameritrade, that's where if you're self-proficient investing, you can open up an account, or account there. Um, or most likely advisors, right? Firms use TD Ameritrade like us to invest clients. Okay. All right. Is there, um, let's go to the next one. Um, yeah, Julian, go ahead. Uh, what are your, the, your thoughts on cryptocurrency? Are there any uh, alternative investments that you think are better? So I'm not big into crypto. Like that's something I, I, my, I remember when it got popular, like I was, I just never got on the bandwagon. So really? I never did. And I think it's because I just didn't understand it well enough at that time. And so now, you know, the, the volatility, also when I'm, as one of the things as an, as an advisor, I got to have to practice what you preach at times. And in the fact that I did not have enough knowledge on cryptocurrency and the volatility did not make sense to me, um, you know, I stayed away from it. But now with blockchain and some of the other things in place, um, and as, as we see kind of Bitcoin being the, kind of the benchmark for cryptocurrency, there's more stability, and you see this week um, there was a huge there was a huge rally in, in, in cryptocurrency as well. So I see it as a what it is an alternative investment if it's appropriate and you're able to use the risk. I would I would stay away from it if you aren't a more nuanced investor. Uh, if you're not ready for it to to understand the the risks you know the risks associated with it and the swings. So that's that's my kind of. Uh, high, um, my, my, my opinion on crypto, but we really do a lot on alternatives and we really focus in on venture capital and private equity and private placement opportunities. Um, we, we do that because we see the private markets, right? Owning privately held shares of certain companies or being able to be part of funding of you know, pre IPO companies, tech companies. We've seen wealth accumulation for those. We, we see that there is actually an effective way to invest into private, into private companies. So we have been able to source really some unique opportunities to, to like, we got some clients into Lime and to Lyft early before the IPO. Um, we got clients into Churro, which is the car sharing, uh, rental car sharing application. Right. Consumer products like, like, uh, Noble, which is a, uh, which is a sports apparel company. Uh, we some more interesting companies that we we're able to store some Silicon Valley partners and angel investors was that really I mentioned these investments that kind of blown everything out the water since COVID. One company we invested into was a uh, remote patient monitoring application for people who had chronic care illnesses and needed and this mm. platform essentially allowed people with chronic care illnesses, so diabetes, um, respiratory issues high cholesterol, um, pretty much anybody at high risk. Right. Allow them to, this was before COVID, so they were able to partner with Apple and Google and some of these people that, some of these companies that make these, the, the, the Fitbits, the Apple Watches, uh, other di different uh, technologies that help you measure, you know, even, you know, blood, blood, pressure, blood pressure and glucose levels. Right. Being able to do that from home, Uploading it onto the onto this soft software system, and then being able to send that to your doctor, and so the doctor can choose you remotely. So we invested into them back in August of last fall, and now with COVID hitting, when people 
people who suffer from chronic illnesses can't go see their doctor. Right. Outside, still need to communicate. Now they're getting picked up by those names that want to buy them. And this is a company that we wanted to raise. We only raised two and a half million dollars for. Um, but and we didn't have any minimum investment, so clients could put in two thousand, five thousand dollars to own a privately held share of this company. And now we hope, right? The hope is this company gets bought by Google or by Apple, you know, in a couple of years, you know, at a twenty x multiple, and something that you're not going to get in you know twenty times your money. That's the that's the target range for when we got into that company. Another company we invested into alternatively was a company that's a cloud-based alcohol distribution company. So they they created the cloud, uh, a cloud-based distribution channel where alcohol maker can sell right to an alcohol buyer directly through their system without having an actual distribution company and putting the alcohol on trucks and distributing it to the to the to the you know, to a store. And because alcohol sales are up eighty percent in America right now, they're absolutely crushing. Of course, it's all another data company we invested in. So it's all these different private placements, these unique companies. And most of them are all related to data, data and technology that are outside of the public markets that we're able to invest our clients' money in. And like when the like when the market zags, they zig. And unfortunately, unfortunately for us, uh, we've been diversified amongst all three that they're all they all seen exponential growth during COVID. So that's the alternative. That's what alternative is supposed to do. They're supposed to give you a return if you know the, your traditional assets might not be going the same way, or I think they'll go the other way. So you always got to have understand what portion of your money you're going to put in alternative based off your risk and know that those those monies are locked up longer. You got to know as well. I can't just pour money out of this private investment. It's not like the stock market. So understanding your liquidity needs again. Know that these investors might might, might not pay out for one to three years, depending on what stage that company is in. So we've really been alternatively looking at private investments and venture capital. Uh, and you see a really big kind of growth there, especially coming out of COVID. Um, what's the next question? I, um, you know, actually, yeah, Oliver, the, um, that company that deals with um, distributing, um, I guess, medical records um, from the patient directly to the primary care, yeah. is, do, they, do they also help um, supplement electric health records? Do you know anything about that? Yep. So they, they actually, they actually um, teamed with um, Acasa, which is a big EMR company, to actually use them to, and they're the doctors that use that. Uh, their EMR system to right. go to those physician offices and, uh, and use care minders to come care minder. Right. And so they actually approached them first because the medical record, and I became a healthcare expert just because I, because of this company. Right, right. Understanding that not everyone uses the same system. So being able to go to each of these EMR systems and teaching them about the, the platform and then them going out to those doctor's offices and those you know, physician groups to say, hey, we're using care minder you store your, uh, you know, your records. You know, make sure you transition all your clients onto, or your clients or patients onto the platform. So yeah, they do all that. They're HIPAA. Um, right. uh, they're all. They're, they're the one of the only few com- only company that's actually doing this right now. Oh, interesting. That's groundbreaking to hear because, like, just a little fun fact, y'all. Or like, so I like, I'm a was a research scientist before I got into like like comedy. So I understand how clients can travel. But old school hospital or primary cares, they would have all the paperwork like right now. Yep. So after having digital, that helps out so many like patients that can't move, that are diabetic, yep. that 
people that are at high risk, yep. you know, that a doctor can really pull up your file with one click and be like, oh, in 2010, in July, we did this checkup, so you might not um, be um, prescribed the wrong medication or whatnot. Yep. Very, very helpful. It's, it's incredible. They just started. Um, so they have journeys, right? They, they track patients based off of their illness, right? They have cholesterol, cholesterol, diabetes, right. high blood pressure, hypertension. So they now created, so it's a journey. Are you taking your medication? How are you responding? You have right. check-ins. Um, and you don't have to call your, like, the one thing, I think the biggest thing is that most of these patients are older patients. Right, right. The big question was, can they adapt to the technology and, you know, do it? And it was, we also know that most older patients either have a caregiver or they have a younger, or they have a, you know, children that come in and check and they do, they can do that for them anyway. Right. So that, and the fact that older generation is getting more comfortable with phones. Sure. Uh, what else like the big thing, like can older folks do this? Can they keep up with the technology? And of course they can. And in situations like this, they have to. They can't, right. they can't go now. So this is a, a need. And so that was really incredible to see that uh, this, it was going to be a sound investment anyway, but how quickly it became so attractive um, that they even created their own COVID journey. So somebody who tracks COVID now can take their fever, right? Take their temperature, send it to their doctor. They can tell them exactly what to do now right. in the COVID journey. So, all, so like the one, you, one great thing, we're going to see so many industries change, so many different companies that are going to be innovative during this time. Um, right. So we were fortunate to get in on some of those companies even before this pandemic uh, uh, occurred. Incredible. You're hired. What's the next question? <laughs> <laughs> um, Oliver, do you have a master class or perhaps a free research checklist guide? This girl has a lot of questions for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have both. Uh, we definitely have free resources and checklists and kind of fact sheets. Um, you know, what is a 401k? How do you invest in it? What's a, what's a, what's an IRA? What's a Roth? Um, so we have, and we really put together an educational series for how do you create your own business? Uh, how do you register LLC? So all these things we have put together, uh, that we could set out to people who want that fact sheet, just basic, you know, one page really breaks it down simply what certain things are, uh, financially related. And then masterclass, we haven't, um, had official one. We have one geared towards women. And my, my teammates, my partners, Annie and Nicole, they have a, uh, a, finan- a women's empowerment financial workshop that they do. Oh, nice. um, so that's something that they've already developed. We're in the middle of, so the masterclass that we host for our athletes, we we have a separate um, individual that actually hosts that, uh, Rashawn Williams. He's like one of the biggest black uh, VCs, uh, successful VCs there is uh, for sports. Uh, Manhattan Magic Partners. He does a master class for athletes and non-athletes uh, that we get all of our young guys into uh, to learn. So there's, we have some recommendations people want. All right. Okay. Um, so we have a couple more. We have a couple more. We got, once again, yeah, Oliver, thank you so much for this. This is like, this is great information. Absolutely. Okay. Julian, go ahead. So what are your thoughts of using insurance policies as a savings investment? So I think that the insurance policies are great um, at the right time. So we always got to think about what is the purpose of life insurance. And it shouldn't be, especially for the, the primary reason for life insurance is the death benefit, right? I want, if something were to happen to me, I want you know, my beneficiaries to receive my 
you know, you know the lump sum or whatever benefits I have. Uh, that's the first usual thing that, that you do with life insurance, the death benefit. And you can do that with just regular term insurance, right? To make sure that, that you cover your loved ones. And let's say you have debt on a mortgage or your student loans that you don't want that to be passed on and burdened on to or your, your kids or your, or your partners. Um, you want to have that policy in place to, to wipe out that as well. So that's usually the, the first thing you want to view a life insurance policy as. Now, there are products that are get a little more sophisticated where you have the ability to actually have some income potential. So you pay the premium, you're getting the death benefit, right? That's the most important, usually the most important thing, depending on who you are and what you, what you need in life. Then there is the potential to actually have an income rider. So when you're, if you're below the age, if you're not, if you're 60 years younger, it's going to operate similar to a, you know, similar to a, to an IRA or retirement vehicle. Where you put money in, right? You pay, you pay into it, you pay your premium, you get your death benefit, but then you're also there's a cash value that's being accumulated in the policy. Usually, that's a guaranteed rate, like five percent. And the reason insurance companies can do that is because insurance companies are some of the most profitable things in profitable companies in the industry in the world, right? New York Life is like they're insane how much money they have. They have bigger market cap than Apple, Disney. Uh, Wow. And I want to say Coca-Cola combined. So like that's how big a company, that's a privately held company. Like that's not a public, that's a privately held company. New York Life is cash rich because of the premiums and because of the availability, how much cash they have and everyone gets insurance. And so that's why they can guarantee people 5% return on their cash value of their policy and the whole, the whole life policy because the insurance business is always making money. And have the cash available to give you that rate of return. So I would access insurance only as a savings or investment vehicle after you have done everything else, right? Emergency savings, retirement savings. Okay, then you have a nice taxable brokerage account. Okay, now if you're looking for more guaranteed income, and I would say this is probably for older folks who know like, hey, I just want my 5% off of you know my, my million dollars. I know I'm going to live off this this for the next. I'm 60 years old. My lifestyle is not going to change. I don't want to put my money at risk with the market. I'm good. Put it into a safe life insurance guaranteed income, a whole life policy. So that is the vehicle for someone maybe that has more older and has a little more idea of what their lifestyle is and knows that that guaranteed income that an insurance policy may have will supply that. Other than that, I think when you're young, right, when you're not, Married, you have kids, no real need for life insurance unless you can get it through your company. Once you have people in your life that you love and need to take care of, your life insurance, get that death benefit. Then if you have enough money, because those premiums are pretty high for those whole life policies, um, then you can maybe use some of the whole life policies to do some savings or investments in, but only to supplement everything that you've done before. before. Wow. Um, what's, the, yep, what's the next question? Um, oh, this is great. Thoughts um, on investing back in, in, uh, in Congo, back home? I mean, that's the dream, right? That's, um, you know, we uh, that's are fortunate enough to have some land still back then, back there. Uh -huh. um, do I know who's actually taking care of it? Do they know what's going on with it? <laughs> I don't know. So I, I would love to 
Yes, I think who was it? The PayPal CEO who was like investing, founders investing a lot in Africa. Like I would say, follow the what, what did Jackie Chan say? Follow the rich white man in rush hour two. Right. When you see that investment happening in Africa, when you see these large organizations, even going back to sports, the NBA, how much how much they're investing in Africa? How much you see the Chinese investing in Africa? Right, right. I think going back home and and, and, and not, again, don't make the same mistake twice, letting other people take our resources and make money off of it. Right. We, as young people, um, now that we have more of the know-how to go back and invest into into Congo, right? That's what my sisters and I want to do. We want to understand, we want to pick a time to go back and assess the situation and see what opportunities are out there. Right. That is absolutely something that I want to personally do, but I think that in general, the opportunities in Congo and you know, things of the environment and the, politically everything is can be situated. Um, there's no doubt that that should be somewhere that needs to be you can put money into, uh, especially just owning our land for, for one thing. Right. It would be the first thing to look to, to purchase there. Excellent. Uh, yeah. I think we have, I think this, is this the last one? Uh, we got a few more, maybe two or three. Okay. All right, you want to see this next one? All right, let me put it up. Oh, I like this one. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, green up. Green up. Just do it. Let's go. Yeah. Green up. Like, why not? It's just like, it's like life insurance, right? It's there in case you need it. And uh, <laughs> you don't need it, you don't need it. And so I think we every client that comes in with significant assets, especially if it's one person has the assets and someone doesn't, we always 100% say you should get a prenup, and we are always happy to talk to that other individual who might. We haven't had any pushback on that before from, I'd say, the, the spouse or the partner that might not be on the opposite end of that. Uh-huh. We it's just it's just a prudent thing to do know how relationships work especially at the rate that this country is at is a divorce rate and man like it's yeah i've seen some of my friends who got married in their 20s got divorced in their 20s <laughs> like and it's and one person it's lopsided and it's so it's just it just makes sense there's no harm in doing it so definitely prenup uh, student loans or student loans or not student loans i always go back and forth under that one because my whole family took off student loans right and Yes, we're like it worked out for us, and but I do see you have to. I think there, I think there's a whole issue with the education system. Period. Like, oh my, universities are just greedy corporations now, and I think right now it's more about the student loans are a reaction to the fact that education is so overpriced, and that people before they enter college, and I would say this is the most important thing besides student loans or not, before you check into you go into a certain university or not, do the return on investment analysis before you decide to put in hundreds of thousands of dollars in some universities in situations like Northwestern before you decide, I'm going to go to Northwestern, pay 50K a year in tuition, then I'm going to become a Chicago public school teacher and make $80,000 a year, $100,000 tops. And so that is, right, that's, that's on, unfortunately, on that person to then realize, right, what is my cost of my education? What do I think my return on my education will be? And if that return makes sense, 
and you you need to get a little bit of credit, just like you better get a mortgage to buy a house because you think there's going to be value in the house when you sell it. Same thing with your education. If you think you can go to a school, you got to take out a loan to pay for it. But hey, when you get out of college, when you sell your position in college, you come out and make more money and it's worth it. So I think it's more about the analysis of what is your income potential going to this university with you know studying in this field. And if it makes sense to then take on X amount of debt, X amount of interest over X, you know, X amount of years, and that's a whole math calculation, then yes, do that. Um, but I think that's the one thing that people, like the education system has really failed is um, just making parents and students aware of, hey, this is what actually could happen after you leave, these are income potential. Uh, so I think that's the first thing you want to figure out before you say yes or no to student loans. We shot a bench at 18. Me too. You going to say like that? Jesus Christ. Uh, let's go to the, let's go to the uh, next. Actually, no, I wanted to throw one thing on before we went to the next one. Um, to backtrack just a little bit with the prenup aspect of it, because um, obviously, you know, you mentioned if you assets, yeah, it might be a good idea to uh, get that prenup. Now, I just, you know, preface this by saying, I don't do family law. My area of law, I do government benefits. Mm-hmm. But what I can, or at least what I would want to say for sure is, you know, if you go down that route and you want to get the prenup, and this is for both sides, mm-hmm. for both sides, it's obviously where people like me, my brethren, my sister, and mm-hmm. attorneys, we get involved. And you guys obviously now negotiate something that works for both parties. Because obviously the thing is, once that divorce happens, it's different. You know, there's love and everything, but... Yeah. Clearly, it disintegrated or whatever happened, but now you guys are splitting. So, you want to make sure that on the front end, you set something up good that you can both live with so that when, you know, unfortunately not, but, you know, if your, you know, relationship falls apart and you guys decide to get that divorce, no matter mm-hmm. how mad you are, still it's like, hey, hey, the prenup says this. Yep. You agreed to it, I agreed to it. So, this is what we're going to do. Yep. And we, we fortunately have not been through the divorce, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but also kind of shows that we have a lot of single for young people, single people and young families. So it'll probably happen. But um, like right now, we, like you said, it's, we've had usually, usually one person has the assets and one person does it. And so we, we usually work with that person with the assets to say, Hey, you can make this prenup uh, process very hard and difficult uh, by saying, she, he, she, or he's not getting anything. Um, or you can make some exceptions, especially when you know that we'll, we'll, we'll invest that person with the money. They'll usually have some of that assets in their own name that they invest. So we say, Hey, how about you give them the house in the case of a divorce? Like, so we do make sure they understand, like, this is not going to, we don't want this in all or nothing because there's going to be a massive fight. So we, it is a process. And luckily we have great attorneys that do all the, um, well, the family law for us, right? When there's divorces, when there's a lot of child support situations with a few folk, a lot, a lot. Um, and so it's, I feel like I have a second degree in, in family law because of a lot of the clients have gotten plugged into. Um, but just seeing that, like seeing the chaos that can ensue without having, um, certain legal things put as put in place in terms of prenup. Or even more importantly, estate planning. Oh my God! If somewhere to pass, and the assets are just everywhere, and it's it's I, it, I 
I, I feel for the people that sometimes have to be are named, you know, successors or executors of someone's estate, because, especially if it's a mess. And so that's another huge, huge thing that our culture has got to, our community has got to, got to do is estate planning. We have, we think, we want to have generational wealth. We got to know how, we got to properly pass it on. And without estate planning, which tells us, which, 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 you know, which spells out exactly if I were to die, here's how my assets are going to be split. You know, it's going to my parents, my sisters, my wife, um, here's who's getting the car, here's who's getting the, the, the house. Um, you know, here's when my kids will get their money so they don't get it all at once when they're 18 and they go crazy. Um, so all these things that we got to do, we put the work in because work your whole life to master assets and you taught your children, hopefully, you know, the, the, the value of a dollar, make sure that you pass that on the same way because otherwise it's going to go into probate, it's going to tax like crazy and all the hard work that you thought we were going to pass on to your kids, your family, it's not going to be there or it's going to be adjustably uh, uh, reduced. So that's estate planning and just the whole legal side of, of protecting your assets is really important. Yeah, yeah. Estate planning, that includes a will. That's what you're saying. A pertaining yep. Yep. Wills, trusts, all that fun stuff. Yep. Wills, trusts, um, power of attorney, right? Power of attorney tells somebody if something would have happened to this person, this is how, this is who gets to direct my finances. Power of healthcare, if all of a sudden I were to go in a coma, fall ill, who's, who's going to make the those health decisions? Do I pull the plug out of her or not? So, all those things you want to have in place. Um, yeah. that come together with estate planning, even though it's the most morbid conversation, like, why well, do I don't want to talk yeah. about a situation where I'm not even here? Right, right. And, like, you are in our business especially, that's how most of these wealthy families get money, right? It's through the proper right. estate planning. Right. And that's, we really want to have a community and a culture that is enriched and has generational wealth. If we're the first ones to really make it and be able to save money, we got to be the first ones to properly pass it on. Yeah, yeah, I feel like the the world, just the simple word, prenup. It's like one of the scariest words for rich people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we're on the wrong side of one. It is like they said it. I don't remember to say it, but they said it. Now we got to talk about it. <laughs> but what's the, what's the next one? Pat? Yeah, yeah. All right, and this is the last one. It's a follow up to the law. Insurance question from before. Mm -hmm. Oh, this thing will actually are showing. Coming up. Pre up, man. Pre up. She take half, no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Kanye. Once Kanye kind of put that, made that song. People actually like, were like, "Man, like, man, prenups." Like, I, that's why you need to get a woman that doesn't know your language and not educated. I'm just. <laughs> Um, um, <laughs> oh, this is from our, our boy, um, Garçon Capabelle. Uh, should I, so I shouldn't use my life insurance for weddings? Oh, you can use your, I mean, you can use your life insurance for weddings. So like how you do that is you take out your cash value that you've accumulated through your premiums. She did not, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> that was, he pretty much finished it for me. Uh, uh, yeah, so I think that you can use insurance policies like that's cash value. You can always use it, right? That's your money you paid into that policy to use it. Um, so 
we've seen people use cash. Uh, we've seen people use life insurance policies, uh, especially parents, right, to help pay for their kids' weddings. We've seen homes be bought. We've seen college be funded. So if you have that cash value in your life insurance policy, yes, you can. And if you don't want to, if you have, if you have no other savings outside of your retirement accounts or emergency savings, and you have that cash value in insurance policy instead of a brokerage account, right. then you can definitely use it. There's no penalty to using that. Uh, you'll just have to you know, pay that back, uh, you know, the loan on, on, on getting the money out. But you can always access that cash value of that policy. I look I know there's I kinda of oh. think what this last one, right? This has to be it. We're we're like we're we're this guy's gonna work an eight hour shift with us. <laughs> oh good man. Uh, you got nowhere else to be good. <laughs> All right. So last one. Sorry anybody else who didn't get in. This is the last one. Last one. Let the man go after this. Right. Um Pat, Julian, Julian, is that his last question, please? Oh, I know this okay. person. So this is coming from CMK, so be careful, people. Uh, what should we do first with any money we are saving right now? Pay off down debt or putting into savings? So this is my sister. Oh, oh hey, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Hey, another coupe. Hey, what's up? What's up? All right. All right. I like to say be careful. Yeah. <laughs> shout out to my my niece, my sister's daughter. It's her ninth birthday today. Happy birthday! Bon So to answer uh, my sister's question, it's I think it's always a function of is your debt allowing you to save? So if your if your debt is your debt your debt your debt expense is so high that it's not allowing you to save. Then obviously pay off pay off the debt amount. I always lean initially pay off debt before savings, uh, but it also depends what type of debt it is. If it's fixed debt, like it's student loans, right? Don't pay off your and it's and it's a reasonably interest rate like four and a half percent, and and it's fits fine with your because that's going to be your essential your essential uh, fixed expenses. So the debt that I would always want to reduce so. Good debt, right? Student loans is quote unquote good debt. It's fixed. It's low cost. Mortgage, right? You don't want to just pay off your mortgage. Yeah, that's good. That's good debt. It also helps you with your credit score. So there's also this aspect of there's good debt, there's bad debt. Credit card debt, bad debt. Lower that. Lower your debt on the credit cards. Um, so I think it's always based off what the debt is. Debt is is it a is it a fixed debt? Is it low interest rate? And does it does it allow you to still have those you know, keep within budget? If it's bad debt, means variable variable rates on mortgages or variable rates on credit cards. Um, some of these private loans that are out there now take care of those before you before you keep your savings because we want to be able to have more have consistent cash flow, and only that good fixed debt can allow you to do that. That, that variable debt, that credit card debt, where it's interest filing on interest, care of that um, if if you know if you, if you can. Otherwise, it's always healthy to have debt. Right? It's good to build up your credit. It's not smart to white like the moment you have the ability to, put, to pay off all your credit cards, do it all at once, and never use credit cards again. Like, no, you need to have credit history. So it's it's again a function of good debt versus bad debt. And 
are you able to, by eliminating that bad debt, because your savings, your cash flow, month to month cash flow increase enough to really have an impact impact on your savings. So that would be something that you want to look at is figuring out what the type of debt it is and the impact of eliminating would have on your savings, your cash flow, and go from there. But I think you, this is where you probably want to talk to an advisor or get a credit specialist or someone to look at, hey, is it a good idea for me to pay off my credit card or my student loan or should I jump it into savings? to an end and let me say something yeah Oliver this, I wish you I, it's funny you, you've made me more confident in money I, I don't we never talk about money you know what I mean like I, I know I never talk about money I just spend it so this is, this is spending is the easiest thing to do I, I'm, I'm, I'm no one's a finished product when it comes to money maybe Warren Buffett is but <laughs> it's it's um, like I said all you can do is kind of figure out where you are uh, you want to start, and it is about feeling comfortable. And I understand, like you're not going to have the right the first time. You're not going to have the right the tenth and fifteenth time. It's right. money is it's fluctuating just like life, and life throws stuff at you. And it's just about being able to have the habits and kind of know how to maybe adjust and take advantage of the situation. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Just educate. I'm glad that I'm oh, glad we got something from it. Okay. We always ask this last question to every guest, and this is off any off the topic that the guest is presenting. What's your spirit animal? Ooh, my spirit animal, I think, is a bear. Why? That's I've been. That is. Um, that's got my. I added my spirit as a bear. It's I can calm, calm, and 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 also tribal in a sense, like familial. Um, I, I can be alone sometimes, right? Out, out fishing, doing whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know, I very, very much will stand on my hind legs if things go. <laughs> if steps to me or the situation is not good for you know for people around me. So I think that's, you know, that's my spirit animal to bear. Okay, I was gonna say I was like, did, hopefully Chicago did like impress you and just now you're like a Bears fan or something. Oh like, no! Oh God! That, 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 <laughs> that, 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 like, do not put me in a category with Bears fans. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, um, um, yeah, Oliver, where can people follow you and follow AOL, A and O advisory? Yes. Uh, so my should have put my Instagram handle on, on my title. I don't so, know. We'll, we'll put it in the comment section, and when we'll tag you, we'll tag your business as well, so people can be able to follow you, find you. Perfect. Yeah. So my uh, Instagram is just at Ali Coupe, so O L I K U P E, and then you can find us at AO uh, at AO Advisors uh, on Instagram too. Oh, so AO Advisors with a with an O. Okay, excellent. We just put it on the screen right now. Um, so what we'll do is um, you can follow the Bonta Boys, like us on Facebook, um, Instagram, subscribe on YouTube. Thank you for all the comments and all the questions that everybody have have left us. Uh, what we'll do is when we put clips up on Instagram or whatnot, we will definitely put, uh, tag your business. So, you know, Congolese people are just people in general that, you know, minorities and women that don't talk about money. This is a good place to go. I feel like these last two hours, I think I've like immensely have learned so much. Yeah. Uh, Julian and Patrick, where can they follow you guys? Amen. So you can go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Julian Chikuna right there. Um, Chikuna, Julian underscore Chikuna, you know, and uh, yeah, or at the Bantu Boys, 
White hair. <laughs> yeah, Patrick, let's go. Look, as I said before, I'm a busy man, so I got a couple of accounts. Persona <laughs> that camera, you can just read on the screen. Congolese.youtubers or African YouTubers, either all those on Instagram. DM me, hit me up. Hey, yeah, Oliver, before we leave, are you going to be at that Congo summit? Trying to, yep. So um, I know Sister Laura, she's trying to figure out, I think maybe April or maybe. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm not, I, was, I wish I would have been at it uh, this year. Yeah. Uh, wasn't for travel, but definitely going to be at it, hopefully. Okay, hopefully, because we're going to, supposedly we're going to host it. So if we host it in April and you're there, I'd love to discuss some more and try to figure out what we can do to, like, uh, work with Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Anytime you need to come back or have any questions, uh-huh. you guys are, I really enjoyed my time with you guys. All uh, right. Thank you guys so much. Uh, next week, and thank everybody for watching and streaming, and uh, God bless. MC. Bless you. Oh, next time we come to LA, we, we have to play soccer. I used to play soccer too. Oh, you got it. <laughs> there it is. Put the back on. <laughs> there it is. There All right. it is. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. See you, fam. All right. All right. Peace.